We're stepping away from our study on the conscience and stepping away from our study in chapters 12 through 15 of the book of Romans. And I want to take these Sunday mornings during our mission's emphasis and talk to you about that question. What is required of Maranatha Bible Church because of the Great Commission? What does the Great Commission require of us? And of course, when we say, what does it require of Maranatha, we're talking about you and me because we are the church. So what does the Great Commission require of you and I as part of Maranatha Bible Church? I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but of course the book of Romans is a letter. We call it an epistle. Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it to Roman believers. Now the church at Rome was made up of a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. And we don't... If there's any problems at the church other than maybe the one about not getting along with people who have disagreements over conscience issues, he doesn't really in this letter address problems. This is a doctrinal letter. He's helping those folks understand who they are in Christ, how they come to Christ, who they are in Christ, and now what they're supposed to do about it. Someone has said that the book of Romans is the greatest missionary letter to have ever been written. You know, missionaries send us letters and they report on on their ministries and they tell us what's going on in their own personal lives and, and they talk about things that they want to do in their ministry. And, and, and actually the book of Romans is kind of set up that way for us. This section, starting in chapter 9, going chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, almost seems like it doesn't fit the rest of the book. Now, obviously, I'm not questioning the Holy Spirit. It's there. But reading the whole book in one sitting, you, you might come to the end of chapter number 8 and then start into chapter number 9 and go, okay, now, now we seem to have switched subjects here. I want to show you today that that's really not what not that is not what has happened, but I, I want to explain it to you and actually show you that that is the part of the message of this section of the book of Romans. Our text is verse number one. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they might be saved. Let's pray. 
Father, help us as we look at this challenging principle to learn to pray this way, to learn to love souls this way, to take very serious, seriously our God-given joy and responsibility of taking the gospel to a world who needs it. Open our hearts. Help us to think clearly. And help us to hear what the Spirit of God says to us today. Help me to preach as the oracles of God, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to kind of show you what I'm talking about as far as the book of Romans being a missionary letter. Skip back to chapter number 1. Go back to chapter number 1. Paul, in the very first chapter, is going to tell us what the rest of the book is about. And he does so at verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the authority, the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to, we could say, the Gentile, the Greek. To the Jew first. Now Paul is now going to explain in the next couple of chapters why we all need the gospel. The rest of chapter 1, he's going to explain why Gentiles need it. And he's going to lay out a case that is not a very pretty um, description of what we are outside of Christ. Chapter number 2, he's going to turn it on to the Jewish people and say, don't you judge them, you're the same way. We're, we're, and in chapter number 3, he's going to just kind of sum it all up and say, we are all sinners. So he starts out by explaining his purpose, his ministry. He lives for the gospel. Did you hear what I said? He lives for the gospel. And I guess a natural question for us to ask at this point would be, what are we living for? What are we living for? Are we living for the day we retire? Are we living for the day we have a family? Are we living for the day when I can finally have financial security? Are we living for the day when we'll finally be happy? Are we living for the day when we have a good candidate to vote for? Are we living? What are we living for? My friend, if you're not living for the gospel, you're an imposter Christian. And we all need help with that. Flip over now to chapter 15. As he gets toward the end of this letter, he's kind of drawing some things to a conclusion. We find out 
that Paul wants to take the gospel and he wants to preach in Spain. Look at verse 28. When therefore I have performed this. Now, now this is, he actually is, is on a journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He has, a, he has an offering that the churches of Macedonia have collected for the believers in Jerusalem. And he's on his way to Jerusalem to deliver that financial gift to the people in the, church, in the churches of Jerusalem. And he says, when I have, in essence, delivered that gift and I have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you. In other words, I'm going to come through Rome on my way to Spain. So, his life is all about the gospel. He wants to take the gospel to Spain. On the way, he's going to stop through Rome. Now, why is he going to stop through Rome? Verse 29 says, And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. In other words, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach the gospel to you too. Now, they're already believers, but he's going to preach the gospel to them. Why? Because everybody needs the gospel. And then he says, I'm going to need your help. Now I beseech you, in verse 30, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service for which I have uh, for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Look back at verse number 24. Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thither by you, if first I'll be somewhat filled with your company. Now, now Paul is explaining, and I'm going to tell you what that verse means here in just a second. Paul is explaining, I'm going to Jerusalem. When I finish my work in Jerusalem, I'm going to come see you, and then I'm going to do some work there, and then I'm going to go to Spain. And here's how you need to be involved. Here's what you need to know. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm going to give you an opportunity to minister as well. When he says in verse number 24, I, I, I'm going to come and, and I'm going to visit with you, he, he literally is saying, and I'm going to ask you to help me on my journey. And he's talking about finances. I'm going to, I'm going to come and I'm going to ask you to do for the church in Spain, or for the ministry in Spain, what the churches of Macedonia have done for the churches in Jerusalem. And I'm going to ask you to help me financially go to Spain and reach places there that haven't heard the gospel yet. Do you see why this is a missionary letter? You have a preacher of the gospel whose life is all about the gospel, and he's dedicated himself to literally reach his world with the gospel. And now he's, he's going back to Jerusalem to help the believers there. He's going to go to Rome and help the believers there. He's going to get some assistance from the believers in Rome to go and reach another place. And he asked that they pray 
for his protection. And they ask, and he asks that they pray for his preaching. It's a missionary letter. But it has a bigger purpose than just being a quote-unquote missionary letter. The book of Romans explains the gospel for us. And as I mentioned to you, this section, chapters 19 and 11, almost seemed to be kind of like an interlude. Some of the, some of the research, that I did, some of the studying I did, some commentators actually think that this was Paul, under God's inspiration, actually added this part later. He finished what we would consider to be chapters 1 through 8 and then chapters um, 12 through 16. He finished that and then he came back and he preached a message about Jewish people and the doctrine of salvation and put that in. I don't think that's what happened. That's just my opinion. But in the first few chapters, he's shown us that we're sinners. In the next few chapters, he's shown us that, that we can overcome sin by the power of grace and the gospel. And when we get to chapter number 9, he, he kind of takes a shift in his focus. Now, now let me show you what I mean. Go back to chapter number 8. I love that chapter number 8 connects us to chapters 5, 6, and 7. And explaining to us, based on what we read in chapters 5, 6, and 7, there is therefore now, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And again, you, if, you, if you read it all together, you can see the connection, 5, 6, 7, 8, here we go, they're, they're all connected and now he's going to draw some conclusions. He starts out by saying, in chapter, there's, there's no condemnation. And he ends chapter 8 by saying, and there's no way we can lose the love of Jesus. Verse 37 says, Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors. I'm in chapter 8, verse 37. In all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Folks, he's just described everything. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he starts out chapter 8 by saying there's no condemnation. And he ends in chapter number 8 by saying, There's no way we can lose the love of Christ. No separation. Now skip over to chapter 12. You you, you hold your finger there. You you look at chapter 12 and I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the end of chapter number 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that you present your body as a living sacrifice. Do you see how it just kind of connects? But it doesn't just connect. There's chapters 9, 10, 11 in there. Why? Chapters 9, 10, and 11 play a vital role, obviously, or they wouldn't be here. This is not an interlude. This is as important as everything we've read so far and everything in the rest of the book. This section focuses specifically on the salvation of the chosen people of God, the Jewish nation. And this section fits into Paul's overall explanation of the doctrine of salvation. Now I will admit to you, it's not an easy section to understand, and I think sometimes people underemphasize it, but I also think sometimes people overexplain it. And both are dangerous. And when I say underemphasize it, there are some verses in this section of Scripture that some people get really uncomfortable with because it's the talking about the doctrine of election. And so some people just kind of breeze through chapter 9 and don't take time, or chapters 9, 10, 11, and don't take time to read it because they're afraid of what they're going to find. On the other hand, there are some who seem to over-explain. And by that I mean they, they end up making this section of Scripture say something that never says. Like, God chooses some people to go to heaven and God chooses some people to go to hell. You won't find that taught in the Bible. The <coughs> part, alright? And I think if we want to be balanced in this section of Scripture... And we always want to be balanced. When you look at how it ends, look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse number 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that He may have mercy upon all. How many people are unbelievers? Everybody without Christ. How many unbelievers does God want to show mercy? All of them. Then Paul sums it up this way. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Folks, if you meet anybody who says to you, they have finally figured out chapters 9, 10, 11. Turn them to the end of this and say, Paul didn't. And neither do you. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been His counselor? Who hath first given to Him and it shall be recompensed? And the idea of that verse is, and he's asking a series of three rhetorical questions here. And the answer to all, all of them is basically in the negative. Who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been His counselor? Nobody. Because God's ways are past finding out. Or who has first given and it shall be recompensed unto Him again. The question there is, 
Has anybody ever made a bargain with God? And the answer is no. Why? Because God doesn't owe anyone anything. And everything God gives is grace. And that's why he says, verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. There's the answer. The answer is we don't have the answer. Glory to God. Now, why did I spend so much time talking about the structure of the book? Because I think the structure of the book helps us to understand this section of the book. Now, as I mentioned, let's go back to chapter 10. Our text is verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. My prayer through the course of this message is that we will allow the Scriptures to challenge our thinking about the level and sincerity of our commitment to the Great Commission. And Paul's going to be our example. Let's first of all talk about Paul's direct sincerity. Now what do I mean by Paul's going to come at this head on, alright? Paul's very direct sincerity. We looked at the structure. Chapters 1 to 5, salvation. Chapters 6 to 8, sanctification. Chapters 12 to 16, service. Chapters 9, 10, 11, where do they fit in? Let me read to you what one author has said about Paul here and the writing in this section. The problem with which he proceeds to grapple was one of intense personal concern to him. He glorified in his ministry as apostle to the Gentiles and rejoiced in their salvation, but his own kith and kin, the Jewish nation, had for the most part failed to accept the salvation proclaimed in the gospel, even though it was presented to them first. What then? Should they simply be written off as unworthy of eternal life? No, indeed. They were of his own, they were his own people, and he neither would nor could disassociate himself from them. He too, like so many of them, had once opposed the gospel, but he had been arrested by the risen Jesus and set on the Christian way. How he longed that they too might have the scales removed from their eyes. Obviously referring to his own salvation experience. And the blindness that came and later the scales that fell off when the gospel shined its light into his soul. Paul could have 
moved in essence from chapter number 8 talking about no condemnation and no separation from the love of Christ and gone into chapter 12 and said now you serve Christ because of this. But Paul wants us to know that there are some people that he is desperate to try to reach. There are people that have rejected Christ, that have crucified Christ, that have even persecuted Him, and yet he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. (coughs) Do you ever feel like that there may be somebody who can't be saved? Maybe, maybe they've lived a hard, sinful, profligate life. And you've prayed for years and nothing's changed. Do you ever feel like it's time to move on? Do you ever feel like, well, let's just, let's just deal with Christians. Let's, let, let's, let's, just, let's just all help each other grow in our Christian life. And, and, and that's... I mean, that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, I know what the Bible says about sharing the gospel, so we'll do that occasionally. But, but let's focus on, on the Christian life and living the Christian life and being better Christians. And, and let's just help each other do that. Paul says, wait. Don't forget there are people who desperately need the Gospel. You see, Paul shares his own concern here. My heart's desire and my prayer to God is that my people Come to Christ. Who would you consider your people? Your own family? I think we ought to consider our neighbor our neighbors as people under our gospel influence. So families, children. Extended family, neighbors, further out neighbors, community. Is there anybody you want so desperately to come to Christ that your heart is gripped? and groaning for their salvation. Paul shares his own concern. Paul does something interesting here. He goes on and he says, I want you to share my concern for them as well. He's going to explain why they need the Gospel. 
Starting in verse number 2, chapter 10, verse 2. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Well, now, isn't that a good thing? Isn't, isn't that a good way to live? Well, sure. But then he explains it, but it's not according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the truth. You see, their zeal for God was all about self. Their zeal for God was all a self-righteousness, an earned, a merited salvation. You see verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, the fact that God can make them or clothe them in the righteousness of Christ, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And what's Paul saying? Paul is basically saying here, yeah, they may have a zeal, and they may even call it religion. A zeal for God. But it's all about what they can get from Him. It's all about how they can impress Him. It's all about their own good works. The word established there in verse 3 is actually used in some places to talk about building a monument. And even folks, I think that's why Paul says to the, to the Ephesian believers, it's, not by, it's for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man would do what? Boast. And that's what he's saying here. These people, although they may call it religion, it's all so that they can be recognized. It's all about self-recognition. It's all about the applause of men. Paul says, don't you understand? These people are blind. They're deceived. Look down at verse number 19, chapter 10 and verse number 19. He says a couple of very interesting things here and we'll be done. But I... But I say, did not Israel know? And when he's talking about know, he's know the truth. They, in other words, they heard it. They heard it from the likes like of Isaiah, who's mentioned back in chapter number uh, 16. Hosea, who's been mentioned earlier in chapters uh, 9 and 10 and so on. Or chapter 9, I should say. But they have not all obeyed. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in verse number 19. But I say, did not Israel know? For Moses saith... I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Now, let me explain what Paul is saying here. The Jewish people are very proud people. They, even now, but especially during Bible days, took great offense to the idea of anybody else being God's people. They took great offense at the idea that anybody else was as religious, quote-unquote, as them. They were the people to whom God gave the law. They were the people to whom God gave the commandments. They were the people to whom God sent the prophets most of the time. The Messiah was to be Jewish. 
King David was Jewish. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. So, so they took their heritage and their history very seriously and, and considered themselves almost the exclusive recipient. So when Gentiles started receiving the Gospel, that's one of the reasons the Jews resisted and, and, and tried to stop that. But Paul is quoting Moses here when Moses is quoting God when God is explaining that you know what you know what I'm going to do I'm going to I'm going to take the I'm going to make some gentiles my people so that you will want what they have I'm going to make some Gentiles my people so that when you watch their lives, you speak to the Jewish people, you watch their lives, you will want to live like them and, let, and they will tell you how it happens. Go on down to verse number, or chapter 11 now and look at verse number 11. I say then, have they, talking about the Jewish people, have they stumbled that they should fall or we, should say, we could say fall away completely. In other words, they, they never have another chance. God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words, there was a definite point in the ministry of Jesus when he stopped trying to reach his people primarily and started preaching to people who weren't Jewish. Paul is the apostle, quote unquote, to the Gentiles. Peter reaching, opening the door to the Gentiles. Through their fall, through that shift in focus, is come unto the Gentiles for or so that it will provoke them, the Jewish people, to jealousy. Remember Craig Hartman? I've heard Brother Craig Hartman say this. Remember Brother Craig is a is a converted Jewish man. Alright? I've heard Craig say this. It is easier for Gentiles to reach Jewish people for Christ than for Jewish people to reach Jewish people. And that's what Paul is saying in chapter 10 and chapter 11. God brought Gentiles, or brought the Gospel to Gentiles so that the Gentiles could be saved, but also so that the Jewish people would see what the Gentiles have. That's us. And that they would want what we have. And essentially, excuse me, essentially what Paul is saying to the Roman church and to the church in Glenford is, I want you to have the same zeal for my people And I want you to have that for your people. And for my people. But for your people too. It may seem strange in this text that Paul has to remind us that what he says is true. Go back to chapter 9 and look at verse number 1. I say the truth in Christ... I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he starts this section by saying, I am am absolutely telling you the honest truth. Now it may seem strange that Paul has to do that. But we need to remember 
Paul's not always well thought of by his Jewish kinsmen. He's at times accused of lying. He's at times accused of favoring the Gentiles. I think what Paul is emphasizing by saying in chapter 9, starting this section, I'm telling you the truth. What Paul is essentially saying is this. Are you listening to me? There's a group of people. And I have to be honest with you. There is a group of people that I desperately want to hear the gospel. And my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they will be saved. I'm telling you the truth. You can hear the desperation in his voice. And Lord willing, next Sunday we'll come back to chapter 9 and I want you to see that Paul is about to make one of the boldest statements of a burdened heart we find in all the Bible. How desperate was Paul for the Jewish people to hear the Gospel? Paul says, I could wish that I were accursed so that they might be saved. How desperate do you want your children to come to Christ? How desperately... Do you want your parents to come to Christ? How desperately do you want your, 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 your spouse to come to Christ? How desperately do you want your, 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 your neighbors to come to How desperately do you want Glenford and Somerset and Thornville and Thorport and Gracia? How desperately do you want your people Well, when we get sincere and serious about it, you know what? It motivates us and it rubs off on others. And that's what Paul was trying to tell us. Let's bow for a prayer, please. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Prayer.